Welcome to the Subtle Cane Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Smith, broadcasting from the Aorta of America, beautiful festival city, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where we pump out reason and pierce through the propaganda. Here we go. Tis the season for reason. Well, here we are, episode 8 of the Subtle Cane Podcast. Market Arona, Smokey. So in today's society, we have an overwhelming sense of anxiety, right? About our safety. We talked about that in the last episode. And it's permeated by a mainstream media, politicians, bureaucrats, technocrats, Silicon Valley types, and transhumanists alike. And there are a seemingly endless supply of boogeymen and catastrophes lurking around every corner. But how much? How much of what we hear about is actually applicable to our lives? How much of what we've been told we need to fear is realistically threatening us? And what is the relative relationship between actual risk and perceived risk? It's worth asking that question, don't you think? If you would allow me, I would like to address that question in this specific area of concern, COVID-19. Now, I begin this monologue with an aside. I want you to remember what you felt like when you got sick before the pandemic started. Really, think back, concentrate on that, and remember, what was your response to catching a cold? We're coming down with the flu. Now, I know for most of us, most of us, we didn't think much about it other than dealing with the symptoms, you know, the headaches, the runny noses and coughs, the fatigue. It was miserable. I hated getting sick. I still do. I was never afraid of it, though. I rarely ever missed work unless I was running a fever or, or vomiting uncontrollably. And maybe if I had a bad case of, well... I rarely missed work. Even as I moved from work in the manufacturing and construction industries and into the healthcare industry, I still managed to drag myself to work even if I was sick. Okay? And that sounds downright criminal now, doesn't it? But think back. So if I called into work, uh, they'd want me to get a doctor's excuse or I would lose a, a point on my attendance or Or they would just begrudgingly accept my word that I was ill, but there was really nothing more than that involved, right? You were expected to push through it and pull your shift. That feels like a different world to me now. I mean, it it really does. It feels like a different world. And as it should, many would say, you know, after all, we're in a pandemic. But, but, just for the sake of this thought experiment, let us remain in that hazy past where getting sick was just a part of life. And other than the inconvenience and discomfort of it, you were, well, largely unaffected by it. One of the things that I've found to be so interesting, you know, so disturbing, has been the response to COVID-19. The response. The progression toward totalitarianism. Yes, I said it. Totalitarianism. In the name of public health. Has been astounding to me. Now, recently I had been reflecting on the reaction someone I know had to 
quote unquote, testing positive for COVID. I mean, they were not sick, not, not in the way we historically have thought about being sick, I suppose. They were tired and a bit achy. You know, they didn't have a fever. We're not vomiting. They were not bleeding from the eyes or displaying stigmata. They were fatigued and a bit achy. Now, ironically, as I record this, I have tested positive for COVID-19. And you may hear a little of my voice or I might sound a little stuffy. Yes, I, I am a little stuffy. My wife just recovered from it. And now I've been sick for uh, a couple of days. I'm fatigued. I'm a bit achy. Um, and I have a headache that doesn't seem to want to subside. And the irony of preparing for this episode as I became ill is not lost on me. And I'm, to be honest, I'm grateful for the firsthand experience. And, and I don't want to come across as dismissive or in any way not empathetic to those who experience um, more severe illness than I have. Okay, you know, my own sister became quite ill. She's one of those, as it's being called, a long hauler. So she she had a pretty rough run of it. And the point is that what I share here is not a, a devaluation of the hardship endured by the illness. Okay, it's an evaluation of the response to that illness by public officials, media, and society. And, and a brief one at that, because it, it's a very large topic to to tackle, right? But we know this is a remarkably complex issue. And I want you to remember that as I share this information, I also want us to keep in mind that hazy past I spoke of, the pre-pandemic reaction to learning you were sick. I'm not unaware of the systematic programming that has been constantly thrust upon us. But I have worked very hard, very hard, to distinguish the difference between serious symptomatic illness and manufactured hysteria. And despite my efforts to, to remain objective, I, I have had to force myself to step back and, and really think about the situation. You know, I begin to doubt what I know. And, and I started wondering, you know, if, if I've been foolish of my assessment of the situation. Is this a more serious situation than I thought. And now it's come home to roost with me. And, you know, I've had those thoughts and that hasn't been the case for everyone. Well, the illness has never really progressed much further than the, the fatigue and the aches and the headache. And in this case, in this case, the level of concern and fear that I witnessed and, and felt not so much for myself, what I witnessed another person really having a rough time with the idea of being diagnosed. But I myself even felt some anxiety about it, like, oh, okay, now we'll see what this does then. But in this case, and in, in my case, you know, my, my initial assessment was accurate. For a vast majority of people, it is not a severe illness. So let's let's take a closer look at the response we've experienced to a disease that even when you count the deaths of people who died with COVID rather than from COVID in the United States, you still end up with a survivability rate of 99.7%. Now, I will make this disclaimer. As always, in my show notes, there will be links 
to where I get this data from. Okay. Especially I try to be very careful when it comes to medical information. So if I provide you with statistics, you will have the links in the show notes. Um, I'm not just making things up out of whole cloth, as they say. According to the CDC, 768,204 people have died of COVID-19 or with COVID-19 in the United States as of this recording. Of those 768,204 deaths attributed to COVID as of this episode's recording, the vast majority had comorbidities that are not insignificant. Let me read some of the statistics from the CDC. Of those people, 48.6% had influenza and pneumonia, 18.8% had hypertension, 15.5% diabetes, 11.4% for Alzheimer's and other dementias, 9.8% of people had sepsis. Now that's not to mention kidney failure, cancer, heart failure, strokes, or any of the other comorbidities that people were suffering from when they contracted COVID, if they contracted COVID. I'll get back to the if. Many of those had two or more of these conditions before they contracted COVID. Again, the link to the CDC website is in the show notes. I did not gather these figures from a blog or a privately owned website. This is not anecdotal evidence. These are the numbers provided by the CDC. That's overall deaths in the U.S. since the beginning of the pandemic as of this recording. The vast majority of people who succumbed to COVID-19 were already very ill and advanced in age. That is well documented, though largely unreported. I mean, if you were to listen to the myriad doomsayers that are shuffled out in front of the cameras, you would think that this disease was nothing short of an apocalyptic plague, riding on a white horse and eager to steal the souls of your children as they sleep. Yes, even as I speak now, I am sick. I don't feel well. And God knows I could do without the headache. But when I think back, I can remember being much sicker in the past. And honestly feeling much less anxious about it, even as I recognize the source of my anxiety being the incessant messaging, I still have a small haunting remnant of it, struggling to keep the fire of propaganda still smoldering in my mind. A great thinker of the 20th century named Bertrand Russell said this, quote, Most of the greatest evils that man has inflicted upon man have come through people feeling quite certain about something which, in fact, was false. End quote. Returning to the subject matter, I went through the numbers and offered some information here, right? About the majority of people who have died and been classified as COVID death. They've had comorbidities or been advanced in age. But let's get to the matter of what they call the underlying cause of death. The CDC provided some interesting guidance on the reporting of COVID as the underlying cause of death, or the UCOD. The guidance can be found in the link provided in the show notes. But here's the conclusion statement. Quote, An accurate count of the number of deaths due to COVID-19 infection, which depends in part on proper death certification, is critical to ongoing public health surveillance and response. When a death is due to COVID-19, 
it is likely the UCOD, or underlying cause of death. And thus, it should be reported on the lowest line used in Part 1 of the death certificate. Ideally, testing for COVID-19 should be conducted, but it is acceptable to report COVID-19 on a death certificate without this confirmation, if the circumstances are compelling within a reasonable degree of certainty. End quote. Let me get this straight. So you want an accurate count, but it is okay to claim that COVID was the underlying cause of death, even without a laboratory confirmation of COVID infection? Think about that. What, what's a reasonable degree of certainty? A reasonable degree of certainty that COVID was the cause of death? That sounds like a little more wiggle room than I'm comfortable with. This is a complex issue, and this is only some small piece of a much larger puzzle, but bear with me as I continue. And again, I, I, I want to acknowledge, I know that people have lost loved ones. I know that our lives have been completely turned on their heads. And I know that the unrelenting coverage and constant fear-mongering has been almost unbearable at times. And I know how hard it is to believe that the people in our government, in our medical establishments, in our educational institutions, perpetuate a kind of destructive deception on their own country, as many, many governments have around the world and still are. And I know that the idea of a concerted effort to transfer wealth and power under the guise of a deadly pandemic it seems far-fetched. You know, we have, we've lost many lives. We've been so traumatized. How much of what we've been through, though, how much of what we've been through has been the result of a deadly pathogen? And how much has been the result of the response to the deadly pathogen? Just for context, I have been in nursing school and working in the medical field. I can tell you without reservation that not once, not once have I heard, either in the hospitals where I've done clinicals, in the cardiac, the ICU units, not in assisted living, I, I have not once heard anybody in authority talking about viable treatments, okay? I, that, that's something that really needs to be at least discussed. We haven't even discussed treatment. So when we're talking about all these deaths and we're talking about how severe it is, we're not talking about how to treat it. All we're doing is suppressing treatments. That is, of course, a whole nother topic in and of itself, which we don't have time to get into here. But I want that at least in, your, in the context. It's on my heart to share that. I think it's important that people know how bizarre it is to not even be talking about treatments. I know that this is a serious situation. I know that we've seen a lot of hardship, a lot of hurt, a lot of anxiety, and there has been a lot of health issues involved, including COVID itself. It is, it is just really important that I bring that to your attention. Generally, when you're in school learning about different conditions, you are being drilled and tested on what treatments would you do? What kind of medications would you give? What kind of, what kind of care would you give to the COVID patient? That's not happening 
All you're hearing is vaccines, vaccines, vaccines. So just keep that in the back of your mind. It's very important. I'll get back. As I've stated before, I'm not a COVID denier. That would be a fantastic feat, as I'm ill with it now. I'm aware that there's a coronavirus that causes sudden acute respiratory syndrome and can be deadly, especially to unhealthy, elderly, or immune-compromised people. But they don't really explain what, when they give you the nomenclature, SARS-CoV-2. You know, they say SARS-CoV-2, and most people don't really know what that means. And what is SARS, or sudden acute respiratory syndrome? I'm going to start by just giving you the definition of a syndrome. We'll just do Merriam-Webster. A group of signs and symptoms that occur together and characterize a particular abnormality or condition. Whereas a disease is an illness that affects a person, animal, or plant. A condition that prevents the body or mind from working normally. So the disease is the coronavirus. You get a coronavirus. And this is a specific one they have apparently isolated. And it causes a syndrome. The syndrome is the group of signs and symptoms that occur together. Let's talk about the SARS piece. According to the CDC, SARS is characterized this way. Quote, In general, SARS begins with a high fever, temperature greater than 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit or greater than 38 degrees Celsius. Other symptoms may include headache, an overall feeling of discomfort, and body aches. Some people have mild respiratory symptoms at the outset. About 10% to 20% of patients have diarrhea. After two to seven days, SARS patients may develop a dry cough. Most patients develop pneumonia. End quote. This is where it gets tricky. You know, I shared the mortality statistics from the CDC. We have an overall survivability of 99.7% in America. And for most of the population, that holds, according to the CDC's own data. I've shared the CDC's guidance on reporting COVID deaths. Remember, you do not need laboratory confirmation of COVID to report it as the underlying cause of death. That's, that's a very significant thing. To, to recognize. But let's keep putting the pieces together here. And remember, please, I'm not claiming to be a scientist or a doctor. I'm no expert. I have some research training and some knowledge of army medicine and nursing. But I'm taking the information that is provided and separating the actual numbers and directives from the narrative. You don't need a PhD to think critically. And I'll be honest, I think it may impair you at times. Anyone who died with the combination of the symptoms of SARS, not all of them, as these are listed as symptoms that may occur, like high fever, feeling of nausea, body aches, diarrhea, pneumonia, anyone who dies with those symptoms doesn't even need a laboratory confirmation and can be listed as a COVID death. Per the CDC's own guidelines, that's the facts, Jack. We have been told over and over and over again, and we keep on hearing about how dangerous this is and how, how afraid we need to be of, of COVID. Yos Mirlu said this about these kinds of repetitions. Quote, Numbing the senses by monotonously repeating an assertion 
is a key element in utilizing mind control techniques, end quote. There's so much more to this than what you see being reported in mainstream media. And honestly, I'm going to have to share so much more information to put this all together. And we're not going to spend all of our time here at the Subtle Cane Podcast only talking about COVID. And I think I've proven that so far that I want to talk about philosophy. I like to talk about messaging and propaganda. There's a lot of things that we can talk about, but I think it's important that I at least spend some time addressing what is obviously a very critical topic in our lives right now. We're going to have to follow the money. Remember, qui bono? Who benefits? And you say, why, Aaron? Why would people want to mark COVID down as an underlying cause of death if it wasn't? Why would the media hype up numbers and create fear? Why would the government want all this to happen? Why would doctors and nurses agree to comply? Why would the whole world be affected? And maybe the numbers, maybe the numbers I shared didn't really mean much to you. And I know that without the why did this happen, the what happened or what is happening doesn't even really make sense. The answers to qui bono are there. And there are motives to be discussed. They're age old, unimaginative motives that have plagued mankind throughout history. Pliny the Elder, a Roman author and philosopher of the early Roman Empire, said this, quote, Grief has limits, whereas apprehension has none. For we grieve only for what we know has happened, but we fear all that possibly may happen, end quote. We have legitimate reasons to grieve. We grieve for the loss of our loved ones. We grieve for the loss of our innocence, and we will grieve for the loss of our way of life. Make no mistake about it. Our lives have been changed, and there is no going back to the good old days. This is not just something that will disappear if you only comply a little more. Another booster, another app to download, another recommendation from our dear leaders. It's beyond that. The ground has been given and will not be returned to us easily, and that is something to grieve. But it is not for us to despair. The story is not over. And there are things we can do to fight back against those who would seek to control us. Civil disobedience and educating ourselves about the tools of our enemies is critical to the preservation of freedom, human autonomy, and dignity. I'm going to put a little plug in for Mr. James Corbett. If you're not familiar, you might want to familiarize yourself with him. He's done an amazing amount of research and And one of the things that he does is he has something called Solutions Watch. And I would suggest that you go there and and check, check some of the information, some of the content that he has there. Because instead of just always talking about what's wrong, it is good to have solutions. And that's one thing that I have have really admired about what he's doing in his work, uh, among many others. But getting back to what I was saying, a topic this important, it gives us it gives us pause. It, it's so impactful on our lives. And I know, and I know that there, there is a, a sense of when, when someone says some of the things that I've said, it, when someone comes on and maybe makes it seem like it's not as serious as it is. We're talking about the difference between perceived threat and actual threat. But a topic this important, this consequential, it's very nuanced. And the answers to those questions are just as nuanced. 
I'm willing to go down the rabbit hole. I am. And I, I think the magnitude of the consequences of the last two years warrants the speculation. After all, I am a skeptic. I suspend my judgment and make an honest attempt to thoughtfully contemplate situations. I weigh the narrative against the facts, as I am able, as I am able. There are answers to these questions, though, and we may not ever know the whole truth, but we can sift and winnow through the evidence, fearlessly and continuously. To crib a line, much abused, but somehow still irresistible. What will it be, then? The red pill? Or the blue pill? For all you listening, you are valued, you are loved, and you are worthy. God bless, and good night. There's no turning back once the fire's lit, let the embers glow and be done with it. I'm startled by my Lack of fear as a world I love turns to